We are 17 days into the year. Um, so we're talking about huge runs and really beaten up assets, massive rebounds. This is the sort of price action you only see when new bull markets get started. What's up, HGI investors, and welcome back to Hypergrowth Investing. I'm Aaron Davis, and as always, pleased to be joined by investment analyst Luke Lango. Luke, I've been on vacation the last few days and playing a little bit of catch-up, but how are you today? Uh, I'm good, Aaron. I'm doing doing great. Uh, theme of 2022 was stocks couldn't go up, and theme of 2023 seems to be stocks, especially tech stocks, can't go down. The NASDAQ is working on a seven-day winning streak right now. It's closed higher for six straight days, and it's up today. So it's working on seven straight days of positive gains, which is uh, not unprecedented, but you have to go back quite a while to see a, a winning streak that long. And a lot of breadth thrust signals are firing. A lot of buying indicators are firing. So I'm starting to get – we had a really bullish outlook at the start of this year for what stocks could do, and I didn't expect it to happen so quickly, but I really think a new bull market is coming into shape. So – I am on cloud nine over here. <laughs> all right, great. And I'm looking forward to diving into all of that in just a few moments. If this is your first time joining us, Hypergrowth Investing is the weekly podcast that picks the brain of investment analyst Luke Lango. Each week, we take an in-depth look at emerging tech and investment innovations, automation, clean energy, artificial intelligence, EVs, and more. Nothing is off limits. If you're joining us for the first time, we go up every Wednesday on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, Google, wherever you choose to listen to your favorite podcast. So make sure to hit like and subscribe to get hypergrowth investing as soon as it goes up. Again, I'm Aaron Davis, educator, lifelong learner, and your proxy into the mind that is the Luke Lango. Okay, Luke, like you just last week, we ended with macros. This week, I want to start with the macros because They've been improving, like you said, quite dramatically over the past few days alone. You wrote in a research note this past week to your subscribers that stocks basically refused to go up in 2022, but now, like you said, they refuse to go down. So can you sort of explain why this big and sudden shift is happening right now? And more importantly, do you think it will last? Right. Yeah. So there has been a significant, rapid shift in market sentiment. Um um, maybe not in sentiment per se, but in price action. And stocks are definitely rallying and rallying strong. And the leadership has shifted significantly uh, towards technology and growth stocks, which are leading the rally of the past seven days. Um, why is this happening? Well, the consensus view is quickly becoming the view that we had um, starting back in November, really. So two months ago, which is that one, inflation is crashing hard, 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 hard. Two, the Fed is pretty much done with the rate hike cycle. And three, the economy is going to avert a recession. So that's becoming the consensus view. And as that becomes the consensus view, more and more investors are rushing to buy the dip in risk assets. Um, look at to, to just get a kind of pulse of how risk on the attitude is right now. Look at the crypto markets. Bitcoin was at sixteen five to start this to start the year. Over the weekend, it popped to 21.5. Bitcoin is up 40% year to date. We are 17 days into the year. It is already up more than 40% year to date. 
Um, Solana has more than doubled year to date. A whole bunch of other altcoins have more than doubled year to date. We are 17 days into the year. Um, so we're talking about huge runs and really beaten up assets, massive rebounds. This is the sort of price action you only see when new bull markets get started. So I'm starting to feel really bullish about how things are, are shaping up. And uh, it's not just the price action. Again, it's the fundamental overlay. We've long said that inflation was never really a demand problem. Inflation was kind of a demand problem, like 20% demand problem, but it was 80% the supply problem. And as soon as supply chains got fixed, the inflation problem would be fixed too. Supply chains are now fixed. Everywhere is open. China is opening by the middle of 2023. Everywhere in the world is going to be completely open. All supply chains are going to be completely open. These geopolitical tensions in Europe, that war is de-escalating rapidly. A lot of people think that can come to a close in 2023. So I think all supply chains are going to be completely back to normal, reestablished and fully operational and healthy by the end of this year. That means inflation is going to tick from 8%, 7%, 6% to 2% and even lower in 23-24. That's just the outlook. And the reason I'm very sure it's not a demand problem is we printed money in 2008, 2009, 2010, 2011, 2012, 2013, throughout the 2010s. And we didn't have a lick of inflation. Bank of Japan has been printing money for decades. They didn't have a lick of inflation. Okay, everybody that wants to point to money printing as the cause of inflation, and that's I think it's sort of a politically skewed take. And it's not the right take. There is no data to support that money printing caused this bout of inflation. There is data to support that supply chain pressures caused this bout of inflation. Go and look at the New York Fed supply chain, global supply chain pressure index, and graph that next to inflation. The two line up perfectly. Now, go and graph M2 money supply next to inflation. They don't line up perfectly because money supply doesn't drive inflation. Supply chains do. Demand is it, it, it does ebb and flow, but it's mostly pretty constant, give or take five percentage points. Then you go and look at supply chains. That's where you can get big fluctuations. So we had a supply-driven inflation problem. We're fixing that. We have fixed that. So inflation is coming down without the need for demand to get crushed, meaning the Fed can take their foot off the pedal. Inflation can come down. We can get a soft economic landing, and stocks can soar. 17, 18 times forward earnings. There's a lot of people out there that say stocks don't bottom at 17, 18 times forward earnings. Well, guess what? In the dot-com crash, they did. In previous crashes, they did. Yes, it's not the 11 times we saw in 2008, but we don't, or 2009, but we don't need that. You know, that's when the world was ending. The financial world was ending. We're not there today. You know, all these risks are very, the people saw them coming. Businesses are prepared for them. The black swan hasn't come into the fold yet. If there is a black swan risk, then the whole bull thesis is, is for not. But there's no black swan that appears to be coming in right now. And because of that, people are starting to say, wait, I see a light at the other side of this tunnel. Inflation is coming down. I see the Fed stopping. I see the economy restabilizing. It's time to get aggressive on stocks. And so that's the kind of big dip buying you're seeing. You're seeing a lot of short covering. And that's why you're getting big rallies and really beating up names. This is the sort of price action again that you see when new bull markets start. So I'm very fundamentally constructive on what we've seen so far. And yes, I do believe it can and will last for the rest of this year. And this is likely year one of a multi-year bull market. Okay. Uh, sticking with the macros, again, you talked about the an interesting momentum indicator last week. 
again, I don't think I've heard of it before, but you call it, but it sounds fascinating and you call it the breakaway momentum indicator. Right. Can you add a little color on that indicator? Uh, you said it flashed last week. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean in this new emerging bull market? Right. So we can sit up here and we can talk, um, you know, theory all day and we can say, okay, I think that this is going to happen. I think inflation is going to crash. I think the Fed's going to pause. I think, 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 right. I mean, we can do that all day, but at the end of the day, all that matters really is what the price is doing. Price is truth at the end of the day. So what is the price doing? The price right now, the price action in the market is super strongly suggestive of a new bull market. And that's why I am starting to get pound on the table bullish because before it was, I think, I think, I think I'm pretty sure this is going to happen. I have a good feeling about this. And now it's not just that, but it's that plus the market is acting in a manner that is consistent with the new bull market. So one of those indicators talking about, yes, is the breakaway momentum indicator. And that is an indicator that measures the, Ratio of total stocks that were advancing in the market over the past 10 days divided by the total number of stocks that were declining over the past 10 days. And when that ratio breaks above two, it's actually 1.97, but when that ratio is roughly above two, so the number of stocks that have been advancing over the past 10 days outnumbers the number of stocks that were declining over the past 10 days by two to one, that's when the breakaway momentum indicator is triggered. Now, this has happened a few times. I mean, it's rare. It's only happened a few times over the past 70 years. But every single time it has happened, stocks were higher six or 12 months later. And pretty much every single time it did happen, a bear market was ending and a new bull market was beginning. So that's a very powerful breath thrust indicator showing that the stock market is very likely it's acting like it wants to start a new bull market. So that's one of them. Another one is a Whaley breath thrust indicator, another breath thrust indicator. That one also flashed last Thursday and also last Thursday. There's one that the the site called, um, what are they called? uh, Quantifiable edges. They came up with a a, a trigger called the 70% trigger. Um, they actually call it the, the triple 70 thrust signal. And that's when the number of stocks in the New York Stock Exchange uh, rising, the percentage of stocks rising is 70% or more for three consecutive trading days. That's what they call a triple 70 thrust indicator. So we got all three of those indicators on the same day last Thursday, the break momentum indicator, the Whaley breadth thrust indicator, and the triple 70 thrust indicator. When you get that convergence of thrust indicators. So it's not just one, it's not just two, you know, it's three. That has happened. That that all th- or two of those three happening on on one day. That has happened one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times uh, over the past 50 years. Only seven times. This was the eighth time last Thursday. Every single time Stocks were higher 63 days later, 84 days later, 105 days later, 126 days later, 147 days later, 168 days later, all the way up to a year later, every single time. Average returns a year later, 252 trading days later, 26%. Median return, 25%. The lowest return, 13%. The highest return, 41%. So price is truth. 
And the price action we are seeing right now, we've only seen seven times in the history of the stock market. All seven prior times, stocks were dramatically higher a year later. All seven times, stocks were higher two months later. So I think that this new bull market is really coming into form right now. Look, right 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 now and if you <laughs> right now you have the chance to make massive returns look at what happened in the beaten up cryptos right i mean like i said those alts some of them are up more than 100 percent year to date already in 17 days the biggest gains when new bull markets form are in the early stages we are in the early stages of a new bull market forming right now so i think we're going to see we've seen some massive returns over the first two weeks of the year i think we're going to see some massive returns over the next two months and that's going to be where the biggest gains are had in this new bull market emergence so long story short i'm, I'm getting very 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 <laughs> bullish about the stock market right now again because we're getting this combination of the theory that we've been positing about is starting to come true. Inflation is coming down. The Fed looks like they're going to take their foot off the gas. The economy looks like it wants to stabilize. So a lot of the fundamental factors are, are becoming constructive. But more importantly, the market is starting to act like it wants to turn around. The market needs to act like it wants to turn around. We can talk about all that stuff all day, but unless the market really wants to U-turn, it doesn't matter what our theories are. The price is going lower. Right now, the market is acting like it really wants to U-turn. Again, this triple barrel buy signal of thrust indicators it's only happened to seven times in the past 50 years it's this is not gonna be the first time in history that this doesn't lead into a new bull market mm -hmm. and so i think that we just we have to be very very aware of that and yes i understand that the macros are kind of scary right now you do have some people saying big recession coming some banks saying they're warning for a slowdown i get all that but that got priced into stocks in 2022 we dropped 20% on the S&P. We dropped 35% on the NASDAQ. We dropped 50 to 80% on a lot of growth stocks. That got priced in. A slowdown got priced in. A recession got priced in. All the bad stuff got priced in. So yes, now everybody's talking about the bad stuff. But guess what? Stocks were ahead of the game. They were nine innings ahead of you. And now they're going to be nine innings ahead of you again. You're going to be worried about all the bad stuff that's going to happen while they're going to be rebounding on the fact that that bad stuff is going to end and stop happening very soon. So that, you know, you just got to be ahead, one step ahead, two steps ahead. And I think that's where investors are right now. I think that's why stocks are starting to shape up in a, in a pretty bullish manner. So it seems like, again, the stars are all aligning between the fundamental factors, the indicators that, you're talk that you've talked about. But playing devil's advocate for just a moment, uh, it, it, this is a fake out right now. Are there indicators that you're paying attention to that would indicate that? And if so, what are, they, what are those indicators saying? Well, I think perhaps the biggest one is obviously the inverted yield curve. A lot of people are concerned. You know, the inverted yield curve is correctly predicted every single recession um, ever since the yield curves were around. Uh, and we are deeply inverted right now. And so that probably says we're, we're going to get a recession. And a lot of people are worried about that. Like, don't go against that one. And I get don't go against that one. But I come back to this idea that, hey, um, first off, we're at a really deep inversion. And actually, deep inversions tend to lead to pretty shallow recessions. It's, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive. You would think that the deeper the inversion, <laughs> the more severe the recession. But for example, back in 2000, you know, during the great financial crisis, that inversion was very shallow. 
super shallow. Then back in the early 80s, that inversion was super deep, and that didn't lead to that bad of a recession in 81, 82. I mean, that was a pretty manageable recession. Inflation was coming down. We were actually were bracing for a really good decade ahead of us. So really deep inversions – it doesn't mean it's going to be a deep recession. And historically speaking, it actually means any recession we do get is going to be shallow. So I think a lot of people are really concerned about the inverted yield curve. But when I look at it, I look at it and I say, okay, that tells me we're probably going to get a shallow recession if we do get one. And shallow recession feels pretty priced into stocks that are down 20, 30%, trading at 17 times forward earnings. And those earnings probably don't come down all that much because the recession will hit revenues a bit. But I think profit margins actually are going to be stronger than expected this year because inflation is coming down. So input costs are coming down. I think wage costs are going to come down. So I think we're going to get a lot of leverage there, positive OPEX leverage from companies. So I don't think that that the recession worries are all that significant for stocks at current levels. If the S&P was trading at 5,000, then yes, it's a different story. But, you know, at 4,000, I, I think we have we have upside, even if we do have a recession because it feels priced in. So I think that's probably the biggest uh, indicator that a lot of bears are looking at is an inverted yield curve. And they're very concerned about a recession coming, but I think that's priced in. Um, another one would have to be that we keep getting rejected at, at a trend line. If you look at the S&P 500 and you kind of look at uh, what what it's been doing in 2022, uh, 2022, 2023, there's a clear resistance trend line that's connecting all the tops of, of the trading action over the past about 13 months now. Um, and we have yet to fully and convincingly break above that level. Uh, and so bears are saying, okay, we keep hitting our head on that. We're going to keep coming down. Uh, fair. But my counter to that would be, okay, one, the equal weight S&P 500 index is actually broken above its downtrend line pretty convincingly. So when you, you know, the reason, what that tells you is the reason the S&P 500 has not broken above that downtrend line is because mega cap tech is still kind of weak. The Apples, the Microsofts, uh, the Amazons, and that's to be expected. Those were bellwethers for a long time. They withstood the storm for a long time. Now they're finally taking on some water. So those stocks are just kind of playing catch up on the weakness game. So that's why the S&P 500 is not broken with the downtrend line, but the equal weight has. And so I think that just means it's a matter of time for the mega caps start to find their footing and turn around. And the real S&P 500 follows the equal weight and breaks above that downtrend line. Number Point number two is that if you look at the bottoms of the S&P 500 over the past mm, three months, they become shallower. So while we have not convincingly broken above the resistance downtrend line, we also have not in about three or four months tested the down support line. We haven't come back down and made new lows. We came back up and we're kind of bouncing at really elevated lows. And so that tells me that the lows are getting shallower. We're trying to U-turn here. It looks like we are going to break above that. So for me, I think those are the two big things that a lot of people are paying attention to is um, the inverted yield curve and this downtrend slope in the uh, in the um, SP 500. But I think we're we're gonna neither are our bull thesis breakers at this point in time. And then fundamentally speaking, I would say the big concern, and it actually is a concern for me, is oil's popped above eighty. And if oil continues to rise, then inflation has a chance of reaccelerating, and that could be problematic in the next six to twelve months. But I don't think when you look at year over year oil, you know, oil 
not at this time last year, but let's say oil rises to 85, 90 by the spring, by the summer, oil at that time last year was 110, 120. So year over year, it's still down. And remember, CPI is year over year. That's what everyone's paying attention to. So I think the market can withstand and the inflation picture can withstand 85 and 90 oil. But if we break you know, to 100, 110, 120, and the year over year comps start being positive, then I think we're we're in a, a troublesome situation. We got a long ways to go till we get there. Whole forty bucks to get to one twenty. So um, I don't think that'll happen. But that that is one thing that I am watching. Okay. Uh, all right. Uh, speaking of oil and uh, go, shifting gears to EVs, let's zoom back to industries again that you're going to succeed in 2023. Right. Starting with EVs. Uh, Tesla's cutting prices now. Xpeng is two. Uh, it appears that price cuts are happening everywhere in EV land. Mm-hmm. Is this a bad demand signal? Yeah, you know, I think it's a bad demand signal for Tesla, but I don't think it's a bad demand signal for anybody else. And if you, what what's the one reason? Not the one reason. I think there are probably two reasons more people haven't bought EVs yet. EVs are growing tremendously. They're more than 10% of global auto sales in 2022. Um, so EVs are, are growing very, very quickly. But what are the two big reasons people are not buying EVs more rapidly, if that were even possible? Um, one is price, and two is probably EV charging, right? The infrastructure. Well, the charging infrastructure is being built. The Inflation Reduction Act assures that we're going to have a lot, billions and billions and billions of funding going into creating hundreds of thousands of chargers, millions of chargers out there. So that's already underway. And then with price, I mean, we're getting price cuts. So price cuts should actually be very stimulative of demand. So from that perspective, we could say one, you know, kind of the glass half full, glass half empty thing. We could say one, look at the glass and see half empty. Okay, there's price cuts. That means demand has been weak. So they're having to cut prices. Not good. Or two, glass half full. They're cutting prices, which is going to stimulate demand and set them up for a really good 2023. I look at it from the latter perspective because demand is not going to forever be a a real issue for EV makers. There's a ton of demand to buy an electric vehicle. People, as much as the Tesla brand has lost a little bit of equity, people still love Teslas. People love their Rivians. People love their Lucids. People love their electric um, Volvos, electric Volkswagens, all those cars. People love them. Demand is there. If you start cutting prices, Demand is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. You keep building that EV infrastructure, EV charging infrastructure out, demand is going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. So when I read about price cuts, I don't read that as bad demand signal. I read that as a leading indicator of accelerating demand over the next 12 to 24 months. I'm sitting here, Tesla's at $75,000. Eh, you know, that's that's pretty steep. I'm I'm not really considering it. Two months later, I go back, $55,000. Okay, maybe maybe I'll buy it now. You know, maybe it's now it's hey wife, let's talk about this. You know, like all of a sudden it becomes more of a conversation. Price cuts will be stimulative for the EV industry. And I think that as lithium prices and metal prices start to come down as well, then they're going to be able, EV makers are going to be able to cut those prices while maintaining margins. And that's going to allow for not just accelerated revenue growth, but also accelerated profit growth. So I actually like, I view price cuts in the EV industry as bullish news for EV stocks. I think it sets up the industry nicely to grow very, very well over the next few years. As the, and 
one of the things that's essential to the EV outlook for me is the average sale price of an electric vehicle has to continue to come down. If it doesn't, then EV sales are going to plateau. Price mm-hmm. guides tell me the ASP on EVs is going to keep coming down and down and down and down and down and down. And the farther it goes down, the more EVs are going to sell in the marketplace and the quicker EVs are going to become ubiquitous. So I actually like price cuts. I think price cuts are great for the industry. Okay. Uh, looking at the broader climate tech industry, the whole industry is in the hot spotlight this week with uh, Davos 2023. Yes. Uh, however, there's also been a ton of articles ridiculing the conference for its elitism. Right. Uh, I know we don't really kind of talk about politics that all that often, but do you think that climate tech movement faces geopolitical challenges in the 2020s um yeah i mean there's clearly been this whiplash against uh esg against um climate tech in general uh that has definitely materialized over the past 12 to 24 months the post-pandemic thing for sure uh there's this whole thing about the great reset theory right and how you know uh the elite classes are trying to reset control over um, everybody else. And so like, th- there's a whole bunch of, of talk and stuff going on. But here, here's how I look at it, you know, without touching conspiracy theories, without touching politics, without touching anything. Um, I think the simple truth is that we are going to do, the world is going to do what the powers that be decide we're going to do what our governments decide we're going to do what our big businesses decide we're going to do the decisions they make set in forth set in motion the trends which we will all inevitably adopt and the decisions they've made the trends in which they've set in motion are very pro climate technology um, the U.S. government passed the Inflation Reduction Act that included hundreds of billions of dollars going towards climate tech. Europe has passed similar legislation from Germany to Britain to Italy. China has done the same thing. Japan has done the same thing. Uh, so those big, big um, governments have kind of said, OK, this is the direction we're going in. Big businesses have continued to do the same as well. Um, Meta, Netflix, Amazon, Microsoft, they're all looking towards more clean energy to power their data centers or their offices or whatever it may be. Um, uh, UPS, USPS, they're electrifying all their fleets. So you are seeing – that's the bulk of demand. What, what governments decide, what big businesses decide, that's the bulk of global demand for these things. If they all kind of make this decision that we are going to do, you know, solar, hydrogen, wind, electric vehicles, uh, energy storage, batteries, if we're going to do all that, that's the way the world is going to move. The world is is kind of like a democracy in that sense. It's going to move in the direction that the most entities or the most people want to move in. And if all of these giant entities, these giant collections of peoples and organizations are deciding one thing, well, that's the way the world's going to move. So while the climate technology movement has faced backlash, uh, I don't think that backlash – well, that backlash has not been significant enough to stop governments and big organizations from continuing down the climate technology path. 
And I don't think it, it, it will get to a point where it will even slow the movement all that much. Despite, you know, all this post-pandemic fight against that, you know, 2022 was a banner year for solar. It was a banner year for hydrogen. It was a banner year for energy storage deployments. Every single research firm that covers those industries is significantly increasing their outlook for deployment of those technologies over the next five to 10 years. So, We've seen a lot of whiplash and the effect has been like throwing a rock at a, at a Hummer, like, you know, a tiny little pebble at a Hummer. It had going at hundred miles an hour down the freeway. It, the car didn't stop or slow down. Maybe it got a little ding and that's it. So that's how I view the climate technology movement right now is it's a Hummer going a hundred miles per hour down the freeway. And there are, entities trying to throw little pebbles at it and it's not really denting or slowing the movement at all. And so I remain very bullish on all of the climate tech stocks, um, including hydrogen stocks, including energy storage stocks, including solar stocks. I just think that that is the inevitable uh, way of the future. And the world is increasingly shifting towards that in a more rapid manner than it was before the pandemic, even before 2021, before the invasion, before 2022, before the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, well, that's good. Uh, but uh, do you see with Davos 2023 occurring right now, uh, do you have any expectations of things coming out of that that may impact those uh, sectors? Um, well, there's so I was reading a an analysis, and we'll have to see what what what's actually said and, and what um, what the conferences and presentations are. But I know that the schedule, the docket, is very climate heavy. Apparently, the word climate is used like two times as more as any other word in any of those any other keyword in any of the the scheduling docket. So, um, climate is definitely a big focus of that. I do think that if those presentations go well, you get a big boost for for climate. Um, climate technologies over the next 12 months. I do, I do not think that movement is, is going to slow, like I said, at all. The government's the legislation that was passed in 2022 is now going to, like, you're going to feel the real impact of that in 2023. And I think with Davos 2023, you're probably going to get some influential thinking out of that that is going to influence more legislation in 23 or more big organization um, uh, movements in 2023. So I just think the more that these big conferences where these power players come together and they all agree, this is what we need to do. They're going to come out of that. They're going to bring it to their separate organizations. They're going to continue to push that movement. It's kind of like it, it, there's synergies there, right? There's synergies. Mm -hmm. And so I do think that the more you have conferences like Dallas 2023 that are heavy on this topic, that's just, that's a positive for the whole movement, for the whole industry, for all those stocks. So I, I'm very bullish on those stocks. They've, they've been strong performers. I think they're going to continue to be great performers in 23, 24, 25. We're at the cusp of a very massive energy transition, and you want to buy the stocks that are going to be the leaders of that transition, not the ones that are the laggards. All right. Uh, <clears throat> moving along, I want to talk about a few consumer stocks we haven't really discussed all that much, mm -hmm. but – I know you absolutely love, which do fit under the hypergrowth umbrella. Mm -hmm. uh, first up, we have a footwear stock that you called a big time winner a few years ago when everyone else was laughing at the shoes, uh, myself included. And that company is Crocs. Oh, don't uh, Crocs that. stock just hit a new all time high today. First off, congrats on the call. But can you bring it down for us and also maybe shed some light on where Crocs stocks go from here. 
Yeah, Crocs, baby. Everybody was making fun of Crocs. I remember I was I was texting my friends because my call on it was early days <laughs> of the pandemic. I think it was like a seventeen dollars Croc or something. It was it was it was low, and um, I had this call on it, and I was like, Crocs are going to be huge. They're going to be massive, and every all my friends were like, "You are you are smoking your own supply. You are completely out. Like what the <laughs> heck, man? Crocs are never going to be cool." Lo and behold, here we are, and, and everybody is, is wearing Crocs these days again. Um, I think the Crocs fashion trend has staying power. For me, the bull thesis was never about, you know, like Crocs are, are cool because they look cool. It was the fashion industry is undergoing a secular and I believe meaningful pivot from fashion over form to form over fashion. So you are getting styles, shoes, clothes that people want to wear because they're comfortable and they're functional and they have a wide utility as opposed to stuff that makes you look skinny or as opposed to stuff that looks expensive or stuff that looks good. Right now it's about I want something that works. And I think that has been a huge pivot that honestly started with Mark Zuckerberg when he became the CEO of a massive public multi-billion dollar company and was wearing hoodies and T-shirts. Right. That changed up the game from stuffy ties and, and coats and jackets and all those. You know, that's how you look to run a company. No, here's Mark Zuckerberg in his hoodie. This is how you can look to run a company. And that started the whole Silicon Valley wave of people just wearing T-shirts and into the office. And, you know, these billionaire founders just wearing T-shirts and all that stuff and flip flops and all. So th that's where the trend really started. And I think it's become much more pervasive and widespread. Athleisure is a perfect manifestation of this. How did athleisure come to be? Well, people were wearing athletic clothes to work out and they realized, hey, those athletic clothes are actually pretty comfortable. Girls love yoga pants. I love, you know, basketball shorts or even yoga shorts. Like, you know, they're very comfortable clothes. People just started wearing them everywhere. And then comfort first became a style. And so I think this is a trend that is 10, 15 years in the making. And we are just going to keep going down this path where we're going to start blending. I think you're going to get some cool styles that come into the comfort uh, arena of this market. But comfort first, utility first, function first. That to me is the way of fashion in the future. And Crocs is like, I mean, that's the quintessence of it. I mean, look, look at a Crocs shoe. It looks hideous. I own like five pairs of these things. And I will tell you, they look hideous. And guess what? I wear them to business meetings. I wear them to dinners. I wear them uh, to do gardening. I wear them to walk the dog. I wear them to the gym to work out. And that I wear them to the beach. And this is why I love them. Because I can do everything in them. Everything and anything, Crocs are, you can do, the, you can do whatever you want to do in Crocs. And that's why I love Crocs shoes. It's the most utilitarian shoe in the market. And it costs like 40 bucks. I haven't bought a pair in a while, so I don't know. But I remember last time I bought a pair, it was like 40 <laughs> bucks. 40 bucks for a pair of Crocs. It's like, Jesus, like, w would I rather get that $40 to do all those things or go and buy, I don't know, like, you know, some Nike shoes or some Adidas shoes that like Adidas boost, very comfortable running shoes, love them. But what are they like $200 or something, 150 bucks for like really nice ones? You know, I can, 
I can do some running in Crocs. Maybe most people can't, but I can do some running in Crocs. Point being, I think that the function first fashion movement is a very real trend that started 10 to 15 years ago, which is only game momentum today, and that Crocs is the quintessence of that. I don't see their sales momentum slowing down anytime soon. You know, people are like, oh, we're, you know, we're ditching the stay-at-home fashion and we are now going back to the office and doing that stuff. Okay, cool. Guess what? People are wearing Crocs in the office. It's not like the fashion trend got killed because people are now going back outside. Crocs was never a stay-at-home thing. Crocs was a shift in consumer thinking from I want to wear clothes that make me look good to I want to wear clothes that are comfortable and actually functional and make sense. And I think that is a huge pivot and that powers Crocs for the next, you know, for the foreseeable future. It's tough to predict fashion several years out, but I think, you know, the trend is their friend for at least the next 12 months and we'll continue to reassess it on a quarterly basis rolling 12 months. But I think that, you know, I think it's a good stock, still pretty cheap. You know, I think it's like only 15 times earnings here. It's still very, very attractively valued. Are there any other companies that are following this uh, form over fashion trend that you're describing? Yeah, absolutely. I think Allbirds is is a company that's doing this tremendously well. Um, Allbirds are a bit more on the pricey side, a bit more of a premium shoe. But I mean, they're, they're plain as could be, right? They're plain Jane shoes. But they have that whole – and there's also the ethos to it, right? Like the wool, the all-natural, recycling. Like it just There's that ethos that people want to kind of be a part of. You know, you, you don't just wear Allbirds because they look good or because they're a cool shoe. You wear them because sometimes to some people, they say something about you, that, that you are pro the environment, that you're trying to save the earth, whatever. A lot of you like – people just love to have that brand identity, um, with 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 the clothing item, so I think Allbirds is is doing this function first thing with a little bit of ethos involved into it, a uh, marketing kind of in there. Um, if I think about other brands that are doing this really well, well, top of my head, I can't really. I mean, Crocs and Allbirds to me are like the top two. Nike obviously has done a great job of embracing athleisure, and that's why that stock continues to do very well and why that company continues to dominate the athletic apparel market. Um, Lululemon was obviously the pioneer of athleisure. I'm concerned about them because I think this brand called Aloe Yoga is coming up and stealing market share. The problem with Lululemon is that it was never like truly function first. It was a lot of like trend trendiness um and the trend is you're never going to be the trendiest brand like the definition of trendy is as soon as you become mainstream you become non-trendy and so lululemon almost got too mainstream and now there's another brand called aloe yoga that's the new trendy and hot brand and everybody's jumping over to there and lululemon sales are slowing down as a result so i can't get too constructive on lululemon following that trend but that's why i love crocs people who are buying crocs you're not buying them for because they're cool or they're trendy or anything you're buying them because they're just great shoes and if the trend switches, you're still going to buy them because they're great shoes. And that's what I like about Crocs. I think there's durable staying power to that brand identity, to that value proposition. And that's going to power durable sales growth for several years to come. My two cents on them. Okay. <clears throat> the uh, the other consumer stock I wanted to talk about was Celsius. You're also – you're an early bull to the Celsius train. Uh, here at the Investor Place offices, you've kind of made them, you have made them the standard energy drink of choice at the office. Uh, I know you're a fan of the company. And again, it's another stock that's been cruising to all time highs. Right. So what happens with Celsius? Yeah, Celsius, man. I was a huge Celsius bull. So here's the thing about Celsius. Um, 
Allbirds. Going back to Allbirds. They made a shoe that is like a Nike running shoe with a simpler design. But I think the most important thing there is they kind of had this brand ethos about them. Going green, saving the planet. Like there was just ethos. There's a brand identity with it. And consumers resonated with that. So they bought the shoes. Celsius to me did that in the energy drink category. I don't know anything. I don't read labels on drinks or, or food or anything really. Like I'm not, I'm not the type of guy that picks something up at a grocery store and is like, okay, there's 110 calories per serving and there's two grams of sugar. And I never do any of that. And I, I, I think a lot of people don't, but the fact of the matter is I still bought Celsius hand over fist over Red Bull and Monster. And there was this funny meme, uh, this TikTok video that came out during the pandemic. And it was like this girl drinking Celsius, um, a Celsius energy drink. And her friend's like, um, what is that? Uh, like your fifth Celsius? And she's like, yeah, it's my fifth Celsius. And she's like, but don't worry because it's healthy. And the other friend's like, well, how do you know it's healthy? And then she just looks at the can. She's like, because it's got a fruit on it. And obviously it's a joke, right? Like it's a complete joke. Like you think the dish because it has a fruit on it is healthy, but that's actually what's going on. I don't know if Celsius is better for you or not than a monster or Red Bull. It probably is. They say it is. Their investing marketing materials say it is, but I don't think that's why people buy it. People buy it because they think it's healthier for them. Celsius embraced this ethos of healthy energy drinks. They put a fruit on the bottle. And then they got endorsed by some some high level athletes like Kyrie Irving and other people that were kind of just like known for being healthy or, or leading healthy lifestyles. And it was like, oh, gosh, all of a sudden they made athletic or energy drinks healthy. You know, the kind of negative stigma attached with monsters and Red Bulls and all that and rockstar energy drinks. They removed that. And I think they removed it purely through marketing. And they've now built a brand that is the premier energy drink healthy energy drink in the healthy energy drink category. They got the Pepsi distribution deal now. That's going to really knock the doors open in 2023. I think that's why the stock is has been flying higher. I also like that stock going into the future. I think that this is a company in the very early stages of redefining the energy drink category. I don't think Monster and Red Bull really have much of a chance to fight against them because Monster and Red Bull will forever have the negative stigma of being Monster or Red Bull. It's like cigarettes. They just got branded with that negative press. People now think of them negatively. Celsius doesn't have that weight. They don't have that dead weight. And so they are free to innovate, market, and um, position themselves as the healthy energy drink. And they've been doing that very successfully, continue that very successfully. And I think that they're going to continue to um, uh, need to grow very, very, very quickly. And the stock will probably perform very nicely. The valuation's a little rich here. So I'm not really chasing the rally with, you know, pounding on the table about it. But on pullbacks, that, that's a stock you want to buy. So I think it's got a great long-term future. And on this note, kind of reminds me, a stock that I would buy, and I think you're going to know where I'm going with this, a stock that I would buy when it comes public is Liquid Death, the, the sparkling <laughs> yes. water company. Because yes. people really, I mean, again, look at Celsius. I, I don't know if there's anything different about the drink. But they've dominated the category and stolen significant market share from incumbents simply because of innovative genius marketing. They made the can look different. They put a fruit on it and they got some really good endorsements. And boom, all of a sudden they are Monster's biggest threat. They are Red Bull's biggest threat. 
That's what Liquid Death is doing in the Sparkling Water game, which I think Sparkling Water is a category that's growing very, very, very quickly. A lot of people are adopting Sparkling Water. And so um, Liquid Death, I don't know if you guys know about the Liquid Death brand, but the Liquid Death brand is essentially – Murder your thirst. It, murder your thirst is 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 the the slogan, but it's just sparkling water. It is just sparkling water. It tastes no different than Perrier or Pellegrino or any of those things. But they put it in a really cool can that looks like I don't know, maybe like an energy drink can or just something looks like a beer can. I think it's more of an energy drink can. Um, it's this big black and gold can. It looks like you're drinking something really you know intense, and it's just sparkling water. Just sparkling water. But they adopted that marketing ethos. They made drinking sparkling water cool. Now all the middle schoolers and teenagers and college kids, they love that stuff because it's not, you know, the stuck up Perrier brand. You know, it's not the stuck up Pellegrino brand. It's not their parents' sparkling water. It's their sparkling water. It's Mm -hmm. the sparkling water of a generation. And that it's growing, it's growing super quickly. I think they've gone from like zero to $400 million in sales in like four or five years. I mean, this, this brand is growing at hyperspeed. And I think that it's not just a marketing ploy. Well, it is just a marketing gimmick, but the marketing gimmick has staying power because it is now the identity of a generation. It's their sparkling water. Not my dad's sparkling water. Not my grandma's sparkling water. It's my sparkling water. And I think because they have that demographic tailwind, there's a lot of growth potential there, but that's kind of what Celsius did also with the generation became the, that generation's energy drink. Crotch has become a certain generation shoe. You got to align yourselves. So if you're buying consumer stocks, you want to buy consumer stocks that have found an in with the rising generation. Because if you find an in with the rising generation, then all of a sudden you're going to get that wallet for 10, 15, 20 years. Not the wallet of a, of a dying demographic, the wallet of a demographic that's coming into more and more purchasing power. I like those types of consumer stocks. Crocs did that, Celsius did that. I think Liquid Death is doing that. Can't wait for that to go public. I think Allbirds is doing that. Love that stock. So I think there's a lot of potential consumer stocks that align themselves with demographic tailwinds. Hmm. In, in regards to Crocs and Celsius, uh, can you sort of explain why these two stocks are soaring to new highs while there are other hypergrowth stocks that are now just kind of bouncing off their all-time lows? Right, yeah. So the difference there is profitability. Um, Crocs and Celsius are profitable operations uh, that have, not in the case of Celsius, but in the case of Crocs especially, has a low P multiple. And so this just goes to show you that um, – the, the the regime shift, the market regime shift in 2022 was all about profitability, that when interest rates went higher, investors really prioritized profitability. Companies that weren't making money got punished. Companies that weren't making money got rewarded. And so that's why Celsius, you know, if you kind of look at just the ostensible appearances of like a Crocs and a, um, I don't know, like a, like a square, like if you just look at their revenue growth trajectories, they're, they're pretty similar. Both are growing very quickly. Square is growing a little bit more quickly, but they're both growing very quickly. Yet Croc stock is soaring to all-time highs and Block stock is just now bouncing off lows. The difference is profitability. Crocs is, runs a profitable operation, positive EPS, low P multiple. Block is a money-losing operation right now. They, they are not profitable uh, on a gap basis and that the P multiple is still very high on a non-gap basis. So that's the difference between those two stocks. Now, what I think does happen, though, is in 2023, if we get another regime shift back to low interest rate, lower interest rates, and the Fed ends their, their rate hiking regime, then 
the stocks that will win the biggest are not the Crocs and the Celsiuses because those are the ones that got valued premiumly in 2022 due to the profitability. Now it's time for the unprofitable stocks to have a rebound as the regime shifts back to a lower interest rate environment. So that's why Crocs and Celsius have outperformed other growth stocks. Uh, but it's also why I think they'll probably underperform over the next 12 months relative to uh to a Square, relative to a Shopify, relative to um, you know even like a, a Trade Desk or something like that, and those stocks have a lot more upside potential in 2023 because they've been knocked down more. Yet their growth trajectories are just as robust, if not more robust in a lot of cases. Okay, uh, shifting to our last topic. Last week we talked about the impact of AI on a ton of industries, and we even kind of talked about a little bit of AI impacting stock picking. Uh, I want to pull on that thread just a little bit more today. Uh, where do you see AI going in the world of money management? Right. Yeah, this is a fantastic question. I've been writing a little bit about it um, in our research notes. Um, I think that artificial intelligence and more broadly kind of just quantitative strategies will eventually just dominate most of money management, most of stock picking, most of uh, financial market strategies uh, because they are more efficient and they are better. It is, you know, it, it's one thing to have a good track record and, and, you know, be able to pick stocks for 10, 15, 20 years and, and do very well. But uh, people who can do that are very few and far between. And access to those individuals is very um, limited, right? I mean, we can't all invest alongside Warren Buffett. We can't all invest with, you know, some of these hedge funds that have been crushing it for 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, but, what we will eventually be able to do is have access to AI tools, to quantitative systems that allow us to be the best investor we can possibly be, make remove emotion from decisions and just make decisions based on data, follow stocks that are leading or buy stocks that are oversold, undervalued, find ones that are matching with the macroeconomic trends. The world of finance, the world of markets, there is so much data produced on a daily basis that it is just a, a dream for a machine learning algorithm. It can pop in there. It can learn stuff every single day, learn so much every single day. And within a couple months, then a couple years, start making really, really, really good, consistently really, really, really good financial decisions for investors. So I think within five to 10 years, everybody is going to want to be using some form of quantitative trading system or AI-powered trading system. Because again, like we said last week, AI is going to be this ultimate tool. People that have it are going to completely crush those that don't. And I think in the stock market, individuals and investors who start leveraging quantitative strategies and artificial intelligence are going to start mowing down investors that don't. And those investors that do are going to make 20, 30, 40, 50% per year regularly. And those that don't are just going to be caught on the wrong side of every single trade or most trades. And so that's why I think what you, what you, if you're an investor right now, what you want to do is you want to start thinking about, okay, how can I start leveraging these tools? What quant systems out, are out there that I can trust, that I can start to tap into, that I can start to leverage to make better investment decisions? Are they using AIs and machine learning? Is there the prospect for machine learning there? Start thinking about those things. I'm not saying the shift is happening right now, but I'm saying it's going to happen in the next two or three years. And you're going to want to be on the right side of it so that you can 
crush the markets and not be crushed by the markets. And that's why something my team and I have done over the past 12 months is actually longer, going back to late 2021, um, is develop a quantitative trading system to help inform our investment strategies. And we've created this system that essentially scans the market for what we call the, the best breakout stocks in any given moment. And we analyze those stocks fundamentally, and then we buy the ones that we think are the fundamentally uh, best breakout stocks in any given moment in the market. But we are using quantitative strategies to scan the market for high quality stocks. And that that's that that's a level one, level 0.1 application of this stuff, but it's it's a starting block. And we plan to continue to iterate and advance that model to a point where eventually it will have some AI machine learning algorithms in there. We'll start to learn from itself, learn from its mistakes, learn from its successes. And we hope to, within the next you know one to two years, have this AI-powered trading system that we hope just kicks butt. Really, uh, and so we're you know we're we're doing these things right now. That's that's what we're doing. And actually, on this Thursday um, at four p.m. Eastern time, we're going to be hosting a presentation to go over that that system. So I hope everybody can can tune into that. Um, we'll throw a link at the bottom um, of this, or we should throw a link in at the in the comment section or whatever. We, we will. <laughs> I don't know what they call it. The description, the description box. I'm not a description. We'll throw a link. In the, we will throw a link in the description. There you go. So, um, but yeah, that's that, that's where I'm going with this. Is that I really think there's going to be a big shift in investing strategies over the next two to three years, and it's going to catch. Unfortunately, as most big shifts do in this landscape, it's going to catch a lot of retail investors off guard. And I, mm -hmm. you know, I could see a scenario here where big firms start to leverage these strategies and, you know, people think that there's smart money, dumb money in markets like that gap is going to widen times 10 because of AI, because mm -hmm. of quant systems. And I really don't want to see a lot of retail investors get caught on, you know, the quote unquote dumb money side that, I, you know, mm -hmm. I want to put as many of those people as I can on the right side of this gap so that we're leveraging the technology we're talking about to, to improve our own financial well-being. Um, so yeah, this Thursday, uh, 4 p.m. Eastern, I'll be doing a little presentation on that and hope you guys can, can tune into that. So with regards to leveling kind of the playing field with AI, it's going to give everybody the advantage, the advantage of these powerful tools that again, can do what you're desc describing, scan the markets and give, you know, the, the results right away. Is this going to be something purely for people who are, are already in the investment side of things or your, you know, your average Joe on the street, will they be able to leverage it the same way? Because of the ease well, of I, use. I, I, yeah, I think it's the easy. I think the average Joe will be able to leverage it in the same way because of the ease of use. That's the, that's, that's my, that's where I think the real power for me comes in. I don't, I don't care about, you know, Citadel or Point Seventy Two or any of those those big firms using AI to make their rich clients richer. Like, cool, cool story, bro. Um, what I do care about is investing. To a lot of people, can be still very scary and unknown and risky, and they don't really want to dabble in those waters. They're afraid to just take the first step. I hope that the world figures out, and I'm pretty sure it will, how to create AI tools in a manner that we can just make an AI powered mobile trading application. You download an app and boom, and auto invest. I know there are some things out there that already do that, like acorns and whatnot, but just better versions of that, superior versions of that. So that all these people, I think something like 40% of Americans still don't even invest in the stock market. 
we need to get those 40% of people invested in the stock market. Like that should be the goal of America because if you're not investing in the stock market, you're, you're missing out on the potential to augment your wealth consistently and regularly over long periods of time. And I, I think that AI applications will enable us to bring that 40% into the market in a low risk manner, high convenience manner that makes them feel comfortable, makes them feel secure and doesn't confuse them and gives them the confidence that they're making good investment decisions because I don't think they'll even be making them. I hope that one day you can just kind of have your own automated AI powered financial planner. You download an app, you answer a few questions about you, what, what your financial goals are, and then boom, it creates an investment strategy for you and it auto invest dollar cost averages you know, for the rest of your life. That would be awesome. And that's, that's the strategy <laughs> that, I, that I really want to kind of, I don't think I'll be able to fully create that strategy myself, but the stuff that we're doing is a step in that direction so that we can kind of be a part of that movement in a positive and beneficial way. Okay. Uh, well, that covers all of our topics, but we do have some fan questions starting with uh, Luke. Again, you have given a very encouraging bullish outlook for stocks in 2023. Mm -hmm. However, shortly after this episode's recording, World Bank came out and warned of a looming global recession, which could be bad for stocks, isn't it? So what are we missing here? Um, okay. So you can kind of break that apart into a couple things. Um, one, since our last podcast, the NASDAQ has not had a negative day. Tech stocks have not had a negative day. So uh, our positive outlook on the markets of 2023 has been uh, correct so far. Um, so I think the price action is, is, is showing that stocks aren't very concerned about whatever the World Economic Forum is saying. Uh, and then two, I don't think a recession is bad for stocks. A recession is the medicine we might need to get us to the other side of this inflation crisis. Inflation is bad for stocks, but recessions are part of the game, part of the economic boom bust, <clears throat> excuse me, economic boom bust cycle. And so long as we can contain that bust to a small bust, which looks very likely here, we are very likely going to get a soft-ish economic landing, if not a completely soft economic landing. So long as we don't get a recession and or we get a very shallow small recession, I think the chances of one of those two happening is above 90% at this point. Uh, so long as that happens and stocks can rally from here because earnings go down 5 to 10% in a shallow recession. Yeah, like I said, the P multiple probably goes up 20%. 25% this year because inflation crashes based on the relationship between inflation and P multiples. So that's a basis for a big rally in stocks. Earnings don't go down. You still get inflation going down. That's a 25, 30% rally in stocks. So I think that regardless of all the doom saying, uh, stocks lead the news cycle. And stocks were crashing in 2022 well before things got negative in the news cycle. And they'll rebound in 2023 well before things get positive again in the news cycle. So don't pay attention to the news cycle to inform your price decisions. Pay attention to the data. Pay attention to the prices. Right now, the data is good. The prices are good. So I think you got to be bullish on the stock market. Okay. Uh, next question. Uh, can you please discuss about Jamie Dimon changing his tunes <clears throat> about the economy when he first predicted an economic hurricane last July. He is now becoming more optimistic, supporting a soft landing and bullish for the market. Yeah. So that, I mean, that's, we said at the top of the call, you asked me, you know, what's changed in the past, you know, two weeks. And I told you what's changed is the consensus view has shifted towards 
inflation coming down hard. The Fed is done with the rate hike cycle or near the end of the rate hike cycle, and the economy is going to get a soft landing. So Diamond's just shifting with the, with the consensus. Um, he said he never meant to say the hurricane comments. That was a misuse of the word. I believe him. Um, but the fact of the matter is, yeah, he's starting to see, okay, there is a visible pathway for a soft landing and, and an increasingly large uh, odds of a soft landing in 2023. This goes back to what we said last week that 12 rate hike cycles, 12 rate hiking cycles for the Fed uh, in, its, in its time, nine of those were hard landings, three were soft landings. So if you just go based on that data, you got a 75, you know, Fed's hiking rates, you got a 75% chance of a hard landing, 25% of soft. So Diamond looked at that data in the summer of 2022 and said, you know what, we're probably gonna get a hard landing. That's probably an economic hurricane coming, 75% chance. And that makes sense. That's what the data said. But over the past six to seven months, the data has shifted in a manner that says, okay, that's 75-25, that odds game, we got to throw that out the window because inflation is coming down hard without demand coming down. All of a sudden, 25% odds of a soft landing start to look more like 50, 60, 70, 80. Like I said, I think it's a 90% plus chance we get some sort of soft landing in 2023. So he's doing that calculus and said, he's looking at the data, he's changing his tune. And I think you know that's that's in line with the markets are, are pricing in right now. Okay. Well, Great analysis for our listeners and HGI investors, as always. Luke, any last words before we wrap? Um, I just, I really cannot emphasize, you know, enough how at the top of this call, you know, we talked about the difference between I think, I think, I think, I think, I think, and it's happening. Right now, we are moving from the I think, I think, I think, I think stage to it's happening. It's happening it's happening triple barrel thrust buy signals from that triple 70 indicator the whaley bread thrust and the break momentum indicator that only happens when bear markets turn into bull markets so the i think i think i think is becoming it's happening right now we're getting a bull market turnaround nasdaq's working on seven straight updates up 0.29 percent right now i haven't run the data on it i'm gonna run the data what happens when the NASDAQ has seven straight updates? What comes next? I'm sure it's going to be positive. But everything we're seeing right now is saying, okay, not only are the fundamental factors shaping up in a very, very, very bullish manner, but price is starting to turn around too. And that second part is the critical part. Because when price starts to turn around and it looks like a new bull market is starting to form, that's when stocks can run. Not just jog, not crawl, not walk. That's when they can run. That's when they can actually full out sprint. You got huge returns from the March 09 bottom to the end of 2009. You got huge returns throughout, you know, from December 24th, 2018 into the middle of 2019. You got huge returns from that March 2020 bottom to the end of 2020. So there is probably a six to seven, maybe 10 month window here where I think stocks can stage huge returns. And if you sit out that rally, you're going to miss the biggest gains of this next bull market. So I think you got to be in the market today. I think you got to be invested. And then you got to be, if you're thinking about being aggressive and you have the risk appetite to do it, I think that's what you want to do. I think that's where you got to be these days. All right. Well, thank you everybody for listening. Please, if you have any questions or comments for Luke, leave them in the comment section. We love to hear your feedback on any topics you'd like us to cover. And as always, to see if we can answer any of your burning questions. If you're interested in more of Luke's AI breakout application, check out his presentation this Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We will definitely put the link in the description. As always, please don't forget to like and subscribe, and we will see you all next week. Until then, 
Bye, all.